show on the black man. So many of you shared your feedback with me, which I greatly appreciate. And we replayed it twice, actually, this time because so much of the feedback was strong and asking for it to be replayed. So I really appreciate that. Um, It was really nice to hear all the different perspectives that people had, or maybe how certain words that I said struck a chord in some of you. So I I really enjoyed um, hearing everybody's thoughts and comments. And to our non-Black listeners, thank you. You know, as I said last week, your allyship is needed and your friendship is needed. So it has really been great to see people of all races marching together and protesting all over the world. So allyship is really, really important. You know, um... Over the last week, like you, I've been watching videos and reading statements from corporations and people who have great platforms. Seeing them take a stand with the Black community has really given me hope um, in a time when hopelessness has become the norm. And there have been so many initiatives that are commendable, and I wanted to share one of my favorites with you today before we actually got started with the day's topic. And this one is called Share the Mic Now. So today, June 10th, um, Black women will speak from the Instagram accounts of white women who have really large platforms. So please check out hashtag Share the Mic Now on, on Instagram. And I want to share with you their mission ta- mission statement because I thought it was I thought it was pretty powerful. When the world listens to women, it listens to white women. For far too long, black women's voices have gone unheard, even though they've been using their voices loudly for centuries to enact change. Today, more than ever, it is necessary that we create unifying action to center Black women's lives, stories, and calls to action. We need to listen to Black women. This is why we created Share the Mic Now. The intention of this campaign is to magnify Black women and the important work that they're doing in order to catalyze the change that will only come when we truly hear each other's voices. I, I, I don't know about you, but to me, I read that and, and, you know, I saw the messages kind of flowing through on Instagram and I'm thinking, how awesome is this? We need to see more things like this. You know, we've heard over and over again that white silence is violence, but just speaking up sometimes isn't enough. We need our non-Black allies to create opportunities for change. You know, the burden of fighting racism should not just be on the black community. We need people to be active, you know, be it through initiatives like this or by financially supporting organizations that are fighting to make transformation happen. So I wanted to share that with you. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty powerful. I also want to thank um, the black men who allowed me to share their thoughts last week. So Again, a huge thank you to Omar, Stefan, Kevin, Aaron, Ari, Wes, Dan, and Sam. You should know that a lot of the feedback I received was directly in response to some of your your comments, some of your statements. 
And one of our listeners was so moved, actually, by Wes's statement that she shared with me um, when he said that his mom taught him to understand his rights so that he would be able to stand up for himself and not fall prey to tricks from bad police. You know, she heard that and she said that immediately following the show, she went to have a talk with her son. She apologized to him for passing her fears on to him. She said that she realized, you know, that she was not teaching him to educate himself. Instead, she had kind of been crippling him with her fear. And this ended up sparking a really great conversation between the two of them. And she told him that from now on, she will have a different approach. You know, she didn't promise that she wouldn't be scared anymore. That's, that's not it. But she just said she would try to, you know, to do things differently. And that was so amazing to me. And it's exactly the kind of discussion that I hope to be able to spark with thoughts and tea. That's, that's the whole idea behind it, to spark conversations and to get us talking about things that are hard, things that are uncomfortable, you know, so thank you. And that, that listener's experience really leads me right into what I wanted to discuss today. Um, you know, being a parent is one of the most difficult jobs that there is. So naturally, when you add being black in America on top of that, it can really seem like the toughest job. You know, I'm not a parent yet, but I'm surrounded by amazing parents and also a ton of, of little ones that I care deeply about. And I want to be someone that they know they can come to when they are faced with big decisions and complicated situations and, and hurt feelings. And when they're dealing with a lot of those emotions, I want to be someone that um, is there to offer support and listen and, and give guidance when asked. And I've got a beautiful niece who I love with my entire being and an adorable goddaughter that I want to protect. So you know, they, they always say that when it comes to kids, it, it takes a village, right? It takes a village to raise kids right. And I'm a part of a lot of villages. And I'm honored to be a part of these villages. In a world that, that, we're, that we're in, in this world that we're in, it's so important that our Black children are taught to love themselves, stand up for themselves, be proud of their blackness. They also have to learn how to navigate in a world that sees them differently than their peers, a world that is scared of them, a world that chooses to judge them instead of understanding them, a world that prefers to hold them back instead of seeing them fly. You know, so how can we do that? How do you do that? How do you prepare them? And I thought a lot about it and I read a lot of comments. You know, uh, I appreciate everybody answering my questions on Instagram and Facebook and sending me their thoughts. And when I think about it, for me, it's, it's a four-part answer. You know, little black girls and little black boys have to face things that no child should really have to face. I think back to my childhood. When I was in elementary school, I was one of two black girls in my class. And, and actually, when I think back, I don't think there were any black boys in my grade. So it really was just the two of us, two black people in this class. And there's something about going to school every day and really, feely, really feeling isolated that weighs on you. You know, it really weighs on you as a kid. And you may not really be able to put it into words. You may not have the words yet, right? But you, you notice it. You can't quite understand it, but it's this thing that you see and that you feel. And what we now understand to be microaggressions, right, are already happening when you're eight years old. Because these kids are at home with their parents and they're seeing how their parents react to things. And so they're just mimicking that. And they're coming to school and, and they're projecting that on to our black kids. And 
our black kids, their brains are registering and processing all these interactions. And they slowly start to shape, you know, how we think, how we see ourselves, how we act. So it's it's so important that there's there's work being done at home to counteract this, right? To balance it out. I was in sixth grade the first time I felt clearly judged for my skin color in like a really blatant way. Of course, I had felt and, you know, heard things in my years prior, but this was really the first time it was in my face, directed at me, and it could not be explained away, right? There was no mistaking it. This was clear. This was because of how I look, because of my skin. And I wanted to share this story with you. So a bunch of boys were kind of joking around during recess, and they were talking about all the girls in our class, you know, who was pretty, who they wanted to kiss, right in front of all of us. And I mean, the fact that we all stood there hoping they would call us out and tell us we were pretty is a problem in itself, but that is a completely different subject, you know, but Nonetheless, we were all there and we're in this schoolyard and we're listening to these boys go back and forth and, you know, they're talking about all the girls. And one boy, and I'll say his name because I've never forgotten it. So Michael McMahon, Michael McMahon said, what about Lori? And everyone stopped and looked at me, you know, and everyone's just kind of waiting to hear what he was going to say next. And he said, well, she's the ugliest girl in our grade. And I was really, I was stunned and I was embarrassed. Stunned because Michael was actually someone I was friendly with, right? We actually sat next to each other. We joked around. We passed funny notes. And embarrassed because, you know, all eyes are on me and he is telling everyone that I'm ugly. And I just wasn't going to sit there, you know, in silence, so... I looked at him and and I just asked, I was like, why would you, why would you say that? And everyone's kind of in the background, kind of whispering and already laughing. And he just said it so plainly. He was like, well, no offense, Lori, but it has to be you because you're the darkest. And he said it in this tone. It was so matter of fact. It was concrete. It wasn't, it wasn't his opinion. It was a fact. My dark skin meant I was the ugliest girl in the class. And everyone just laughed and agreed with him. And in the moment, you know, obviously I'm incredibly hurt and I was really embarrassed. But outside of that moment, when recess was over, I was able to just move forward. You know, because of my parents and what we talked about at home, I already understood that white people see me differently. This encounter could have made me look at myself in a totally negative light. But the work that was being done in my home to build me up and open my eyes to the outside world or how the outside world would view me had prepared me for this moment. You know, now, of course, I wish I could go back in time and (laughs) tell that eight-year-old boy a few things about himself. (laughs) You know, honestly, I wish I would have said more. It's one of those memories that I often replay in my mind, seeing myself say all the things, you know, that I could have said. But in the moment, I didn't say anything. Um, That's that's the truth. I just didn't say anything. I was I was 10. And. Not, not not ready to just attack, but I, I took it in and I was able to go on with the rest of my day and interact with my classmates without having, you know, what he said be something that defined me. And I'm grateful, you know, that my mother prepared me for moments like that. When we think about what's necessary for a beautiful black girl to grow into a beautiful, strong black woman. Self-worth and self-love are at the top of that list, in my, in my opinion anyway. You know, it's so important that we love ourselves and we teach our kids to love themselves. 
Because for the most part, everything around us, on the screen, in our classrooms, in society, is showing us that we shouldn't. When I was growing up, you know, none of the Disney princesses looked like me. None of them. I loved them all and knew all their songs and could recite words from the movies front to back, but none of them looked like me. When we would go out to Toys R Us, there were 40 different white Barbies to choose from. Different professions, different outfits, different hairstyles, but only one black Barbie. You know, you really have to think about that. The Barbie brand is this huge thing, right? It um, started in 1959, and it took them 21 years to create Black Barbie in 1980. But all she had was black skin. All of her features were still white features, Think about what that means to a little girl who was looking at this doll, Barbie, the most popular doll ever produced, sold in 150 countries worldwide, and at its height, they say there were more than 100 dolls sold every minute, with a total of 58 million dolls sold annually. Think about the the impact that that makes. You know, you're looking at White Barbie, you're, you're in the store, you're looking at all the Barbies on the shelves, you see White Barbie as a doctor, you see her as a lawyer, you see her as a mom, you see her as an astronaut, a pilot, a journalist, a firefighter. And we Black girls, we get one Black Barbie? It wasn't until 2009 that Mattel introduced the So In Style Barbie collection, right? That was intended to create a more realistic depiction of Black people. 2009. And then it wasn't until 2016 that they expanded the line to include all of the, you know, not all, but more variety in the Black Barbie. They created seven different skin tones, 24 different hairstyles, 22 different eye colors, in 2016. In 2016, I was already in my 30s. It was too late. Too late for me. So if my mom had left it to Barbie to teach me all that I could be, what do you think I'd be doing today? I don't know where I'd be. It's so important that the work is done at home on TV and store shelves and in storybooks, being beautiful meant fair skin, you know, um, long silky hair or light eyes, none of which I possessed. So the responsibility of teaching me that black is beautiful was on my parents and, and extended to my village. Right? We have to, un- to really understand the weight of that on a child. When we look at the, um, the doll experiment right from the 1940s, I'm sure many of us have seen this, but for those who haven't, this experiment was uh, done by Kenneth and Mamie Clark, and they conducted these doll experiments in order to study children's attitudes about race, right? How kids felt about race. The experiment involved presenting a child with two dolls. Both dolls were totally identical, right? Um, Other than their skin and their hair color. So one doll is white with blonde hair and the other is black with black hair. And then each child is asked questions. Like, which doll would they rather play with? You know, which one is the nice doll? Which one looks bad? Which one has the nicer color? Which one is pretty? And the results showed a clear preference for the white doll among all the children in the study. So all the children, different races, they all preferred the white doll. So 
one of the biggest conclusions from the experiment was that black children by the age of five are already really aware that being black in America made them inferior. Right? Think about that. Already at the age of five, they're aware that they are inferior because of their skin color. That doesn't happen by accident. It's, it's by design. There are so many things put in place to make our little black girls and boys feel like they are not beautiful, that they are less than. So we can't wait for the world to catch up. We can't wait for society to tell our kids how beautiful their skin is. The Clark's experiment was done in the 1940s. And it's still totally relevant today. Sarah Ward, a photographer from New Orleans, posted a picture of her black friend and her son to Instagram a few days to you know a few days ago, as all of this is going on in the world. And she wrote, "As I was photographing my dear friend Mickey and her beautiful boy, tears began to fall down her face." The tears represent the heartache of having to explain to her innocent little boy that as he grows up, he will be treated differently. She stated, why do I have the same conversation with my son that my dad had with me so many years ago? Right? That's our reality. Things aren't changing fast enough. So we can't wait. We have to take the steps to build our children up at home. And I think affirmations are so impactful, especially for kids. You know, I've seen several videos in recent years of black parents forcing their kids to look at themselves in the mirror while they repeat affirmations. I am beautiful. I am amazing. I am smart. I am strong. I am fabulous. I am black and proud. These affirmations, words of encouragement, become armor for our little black children. It's so important, right? The, the love for myself that I learned from my mother became my shield and protection from all the little Michael McMahons in the world who thought my skin made me ugly. Without that self-worth, I wouldn't be where I am today. Because if you hear those kinds of words about yourself for long enough, without having something to combat them, you start to believe it. It starts to shape who you are, how you see yourself. Maybe it makes you undervalue your body and give it away to someone who doesn't deserve it because you think that's the only way he will look at you. Or maybe it makes you hate yourself. Maybe it makes you think there's no point in trying to get that A because, you know, no one's going to see me as smart anyway. Maybe it makes you think you have to let people walk all over you so they can see you as this really nice person who's non-threatening. We need to give our kids those affirmations so... Their self-love and self-confidence are unwavering so that they always have a soft place to land when the world knocks them down. They have to hear from us over and over again that they are limitless, right? That they have the power to break through glass ceilings and any shackles that are placed on them. When I was thinking about this topic and, and looking at the, the TV shows that I um, have enjoyed or watched recently and learned from, well, actually, before I mention the TV shows, um, I want to point out something that was really amazing that happened this weekend. Um, a Netflix series called History 101 was called into question because in its episode nine, um, titled AIDS, it retraced the history of the disease from Africa to the United States 
and it placed Haiti at the center of the epidemic. So once the news of this complete misinformation spread, um, Haitians, Haitian Americans acted quickly, right? Launching a very fast campaign via phone, email, social media to force Netflix to pull the episode. And within a few hours, Netflix removed it. So, of course, I hate that this was even an issue that we had to deal with, especially at this time, right, when we're all already battling so much in this country. But I have to say, I was really proud. I was really proud of us in that moment. It felt like we really understood our power and we used our voices to force a major corporation to not only hear us, but to act swiftly. So, you know, with that, I just say kudos to our community for speaking up and, and kudos to Netflix for listening. It's, it's starting to feel like some companies see that our money is green too. And if they want us to spend with them, they have to do what's right. They have to be socially responsible and they have to respect our communities. So I just wanted to share that with you. But back to today's topic, you know, I watched this um, great show on Netflix called Raising Dion. Raising Dion is a superhero drama series um, based on a comic book of the same name by Dennis Liu. And one of the executive producers of the show is actor Michael B. Jordan, who also stars in the series. And this show is about Nicole, right? Nicole is a woman who is raising her son alone after the death of her husband. And in addition to the typical struggles of raising a child, Nicole's situation becomes a little more complex as her son starts to manifest these like superhero um, abilities. So as she's trying to manage these gifts, and to protect him from people who would exploit him for his abilities, she also has to deal with the realities of raising a Black boy and, and all that comes with that. Now, anyone who knows me knows I am, you know, super into all of the superhero stuff, right? Like, I, I since I was a kid, I've been always so very interested and having a younger brother, I felt like it always, you know, I was always in the loop as to what was going on in that world. So naturally, I'd be all in on these, you know, on this series. But as I watched it, I, I realized that there was so much more there, right? So in episode three, Nicole is forced to have this really tough talk with her young son. Um, Dion has an incident with a white boy at school. This boy, who is known for picking on him, tricks him into taking off his watch and handing it over to him for a magic trick. But there really is no magic trick, right? The boy decides not to give Dion his watch back. And I won't give too much away, but ultimately, something happens between the two boys. And when an adult, the principal, finally steps in, he doesn't really care what Dion has to say. He doesn't care <laughs> that, you know, Dion is saying, this boy stole my watch, right? He doesn't care that this, this white boy is actually wearing Dion's watch right in front of his eyes. In his mind, Dion did something wrong, and he's the violent one. That's the immediate assumption, and Dion is punished. So just like that, he made this decision without really talking to the boys and really hearing them out, and nothing could sway him. That was it. You know, not even the white boy kind of backtracking on his initial accusations of Dion. So Nicole, his mom, is, is forced to have the talk, right? That talk. The talk that we shouldn't have to have, but in today's society, we must have. She explains to her beautiful and sweet little boy that because of his skin color, he has to be extra careful. He has to understand that without really knowing him, 
People like his principal will think he's a bad kid, and they will be afraid of him. She explains to him that his principal has bad ideas in his head, and those are the ideas that are telling him to treat Dion differently. It's wrong, but it happens, and the world is not fair, right? How hard is that? But it's a conversation that has to happen, and it, and it has to happen repeatedly, right? The first time you have it will not be the last, and it will get tougher and tougher with each year. With all the new situations that children are exposed to, it just gets harder. And, you know, I, I really enjoyed this first season of the series because it felt so true to me. As Black parents, you know, superhero abilities or not, we have to protect our children from people who want to exploit them as well as from people who fear them. It's a really daunting task. You know, I think of my brother when he was that age. Or I look at the sons of my loved ones. So much joy in them, you know, a, a sweetness in them. My brother used to give the best and biggest hugs. He just wanted to hug everybody. And when he was five, we had just moved to a new neighborhood. And he was the only one in our family who took the time to get to know our neighbors. If we were playing outside and a neighbor came out, he would stop. He would stop what he was doing and go over to say hello. They all knew his name, you know, they knew his name before they knew any of the rest of us. And there was this like really beautiful innocence in him, a genuine care and thoughtfulness for the people around him. So many of our black, black children, you know, have this in them. And I think it's really challenging to find a way to explain to them that despite who they are, they will be treated differently, treated as thugs, right? How, how, how much have we been hearing that word in the news today, thugs? And so they have to be careful who they interact with and how they interact with them. We have to find a way to open their eyes to the dangers out there but also be sure not to turn off their light. So affirmations alone won't work, right? We also have to teach them that they have to be more. They have to try harder, work harder, run faster, study more, be nicer, be smarter, be more respectful, be more cautious. We have to say all of these things to them while affirming them at the same time, right? You can work harder because you are strong. You can be smarter because you are capable. You can run faster because you are amazing. For parents and people who are just trying to support our children, it can feel a lot like walking a tightrope, right? Making sure you give enough of this and just enough of that so they are armed with the tools they'll need to survive out there. We also have to make them understand that even though they'll be working harder, any little mistake that they make will be judged harsher than their peers. And that's like another layer of difficulty, right? But we, we have to find a way to get them to understand that or they'll end up learning it the hard way. Being the best student will not exempt you from being pulled over. It won't stop a cop from pointing a gun at you. But you have to do it anyway. You have to try your hardest. And when you look at it that way, it's just an immense amount of pressure to put on them. But we have no choice. This pressure comes with our skin. There's, there's no way around it. That thinking that, oh, all kids can make mistakes. It's okay. Not a big deal. That's, that's a luxury that we don't have. And it's, it's still hard for me to wrap my head around it. So just imagine what it's like for a 10-year-old. But 
that's just where we're at. In our eyes, they are innocent 10-year-olds. But the world sees them as thugs that should be feared and treated as adults. That's, that's where we're at. That's the world we live in. Last year, um, Netflix released another series, uh, When They See Us, a four-part miniseries created and co-written and directed by Ava DuVernay. So if you haven't seen it, please, please, please watch it. It's difficult to watch because it's heartbreaking and infuriating, but it's a must-see, especially today. The series is based on the 1989 Central Park jogger case. Um, It delves into the lives and families of the five young boys who are now known as the Exonerated Five, but they were wrongfully accused and prosecuted on rape and assault charges of a white woman in Central Park. And... You know, first, I want to take a moment to just recognize the exceptional talent that is in this piece of work. You know, Ava DuVernay at the helm was just absolutely amazing, really telling this deeply emotional and layered stories in ways that a lot of us could not have imagined. And in talking to people about it, there isn't a person that I've met who has seen it who can say they felt nothing. And when I speak for myself, she she made me feel everything, right? All the feelings, anger, sadness, heartbreak, rage, pride, and hope. And, And that's a black woman, right? Telling a black story. And the acting on top of it, I mean, the actors were phenomenal, right? Especially Jarrell Jerome, who uh, who ended up winning the Emmy for Outstanding Lead Actor. It's, it's just a work of art. So, you know, please watch it. I know it's not easy, but when we ask for more Black stories to be told, we have to support them. If we want more of our stories on the screen, if we want more people who look like us to be paid and awarded for their talents, we have to support pieces like this. So, you know, there's so much that we can learn from watching this story. And it's very complex. It's very layered. I mean, if you're if you want to talk about, you know, criminal the criminal justice system and all of I mean there's just so many things you can talk about but for today um the thing that really struck me was the calculated way the prosecutor and the detectives broke these boys down right all of the adults in this scenario their goal was to break these boys down to get them to confess to things they didn't do, keeping them for hours, questioning them nonstop, just, you know, over and over again, pitting them against each other, talking to them without their parents or lawyers present, and doing so with such determination to nail these kids without much evidence. They didn't have much evidence to stand on. They just made the decision that these kids were the ones that did it and they were going to make them say they did it. How they even tricked, you know, some of the parents into getting their boys to quote-unquote cooperate so they could just go home. right? They were teenagers. They'd have to be teenagers to believe that. They'd have to be kids to believe that. Fine. I'm tired. 
I'm sick of sitting here. I want to go home. I'm hungry. I'll just tell you whatever you want me to say so that I can go home. I'll admit to committing this brutal crime so you can send me home. They were too young to understand that once they admitted to this, there was no going home for them. I had to take breaks as I watched. It was so much to digest. So much violence and hatred for our kids. A complete, just complete disregard for the lives and potential that each of these boys had. And we know that things like that are still happening today. We see it. We see it in all these videos being posted. And I mean, thank God for videos. Like, if we didn't have that smartphone in our pocket to quickly pull out and record what was happening, how many more kids would be in this position? Each of the five boys was convicted of most of the charges against them. You know, and one of them, Corey Wise, was charged as an adult and had an incredibly difficult time in an adult prison. Think about that. When I ask people over the past week what they think we have to teach our Black children, So many people said we have to educate them on their rights. We have to teach them about their history, about the things that were done to men and women who look just like them. Right? So in addition to teaching them to love themselves and to value themselves, and in addition to teaching them that they have to work twice as hard to get some of the same opportunities that their peers will get. We have to educate them about their history and about the system that we're all in. Audre Lorde said, raising black children, female and male, in the mouth of a racist, sexist, suicidal dragon is perilous and chancy. If they cannot love and resist at the same time, they will probably not survive. Our kids need to know what they will face out in the world. Knowing won't keep them from getting swept up or pulled over by police, but it can give them the tools to navigate through these situations. And unfortunately, you know, knowing their rights and being able to articulate their rights in a respectful manner may not even be enough to get them home safely. But it's a start. There is no foolproof answer. We just have to do our best and make sure their eyes are open. You know, like I said earlier, I've been reading a lot of comments over the last week from parents struggling to explain what's happening in the world to their kids. And Ishmael Sabor said, well, my eight-year-old finally asked what's going on, and I tried to explain things for an eight-year-old. Then he said, Daddy, are we going back to being slaves? This has been a tough week. You know, these, a comment like that, like, this is what our parents are thinking about. This is what parents are dealing with right now. Trying to have these conversations with their kids. And it's all so hard to explain, but we have to find a way, right? We have to find a way. This world will soon be in their hands. So in addition to fighting to make it better for them, we have to ensure that they are aware and prepared to take up the fight themselves. 
Aisha Curry posted on Instagram this weekend, the kids are watching, listening, and learning. What will you have them retain? Let's get it right for them so they don't have to for their children. And, you know, this comment was underneath pictures of her and her husband, Steph Curry, protesting with their children, hand in hand, in the streets, you know, signs in their hand. And that's really important, too. You can talk to your kids till you're blue in the face about history, about what's right, about what's wrong, about how hard they have to work and how beautiful they are. But it'll fall on deaf ears if you are not leading by example and backing it up. Children learn by watching us. They need to see and hear us fighting for what's right. They need to see us take action, not just sit idly by and, you know, complain about how tough things are. Lip service isn't enough. Talking isn't enough. I remember being a child and going to marches and protests with my mom. Right? I remember so vividly screaming, no justice, no peace. And that is something that I can never unsee. I felt it. I felt what it meant to be out there with thousands of Haitian people like me standing up and fighting for ourselves. So it's just built in me at this point. Right? That's what makes it so when Trump says, you know, Haiti is a shithole country, or when Netflix has a series that is is putting out misinformation about Haitians and Haiti. That's what makes me feel like I have to act. And not like, oh, I need to act tomorrow. No, I need to act now. Because that's what I saw my parents do. They need to see us taking action. In thinking about all of the things that I've been seeing this past week, right? We've seen comments from, you know, big companies, HBO, ABC, you know, I'm an avid Peloton writer and Peloton has been very vocal about standing with the black community. All of that is great, but What are you doing to back it up? What are the things and plans that you're putting into action to back up that support, right? To put your money where your mouth is. I loved what Alexi Ohanian did, right? He is a white man, the co-founder of Reddit. And up until last week, he was its executive chairman. And Alexi is married to Serena Williams, right? Accomplished tennis star. And, you know, I mean, I feel like accomplished doesn't even seem like a big enough word to describe her. She's literally a black superwoman. And they have a beautiful daughter, a beautiful black daughter. And so with all of this going on in the world, he announced his retirement from the board last week and encouraged the board to replace him with a black person. Here's a a piece of his statement. He said, I co-founded Reddit 15 years ago to help people find community and a sense of belonging. It is long overdue to do the right thing. I'm doing this for me, for my family, and for my country. I'm writing this as a father who needs to be able to answer his black daughter when she asks, what did you do? He went on to say, I I have resigned as a member of the Reddit board. I have urged them to fill my seat with a black candidate, and I will use future gains on my Reddit stock to serve the black community, chiefly to curb racial hate. And I'm starting with a pledge of a million dollars to Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights camp. 
I don't know about you, but to me, this is a great example of someone who is in a position of power taking action to help transform the world for his daughter. We have to lead by example. You know, when we look at the teen girls who organized a uh, 10,000 person Black Lives Matter protest in Nashville, how do you think that happened? Someone in their lives was leading by example. They watched and learned and were able to stand up today at such a young age for what is right because they saw someone else do it. Before our kids even walk out the door, there are so many obstacles already set up for them. There was a study done in 2018 by Stanford, Harvard, and the Census Bureau. And they found that most white boys raised in wealthy families will stay rich or at least upper middle class as adults. But black boys raised in those similarly rich households will not. Black boys are more likely to become poor in their own adult households, even if they were raised in rich ones. I mean, that's astonishing, but it's, it's a truth we need to hear. If you think that because you made it and you're successful and you're wealthy, that you don't have to teach your kids these things. If you think that your success and your bank account is some kind of um, escape for racism for them, I'm sorry, but you are sadly mistaken. I want to share some of these numbers because it, it, it will really help illustrate this. So this, this study followed 10,000 boys who grew up rich, 5,000 white, 5,000 black. So 39% of the white ones became rich adults. 17% of those black boys became rich. 24% of the white boys grew into white men who were considered upper middle class. 19% of those black boys ended up becoming a part of a group considered to be upper middle class. 16% of the white ones grew to be considered middle class. 22% of the black men were considered middle class. I hope you're seeing the pattern. 10% of the white ones were considered lower middle class adults. And 20% of the black ones were considered lower middle class. Only 10% of the white ones became poor in their adulthood and 21% of the black ones became poor as adults. I know that's a lot of info, but I think it's important for us to talk about, for us to share, right? So uh, just in case you lost track, let me, I, I will summarize. So that means that out of the 5,000 white boys, 3,185 of them, were able to hold on to their wealth as adults, staying in either upper middle class or rich categories, while only 1,815 of them were considered to be middle class, lower middle class, or poor. And you're comparing that to the 5,000 black boys that were studied, where only 1,820 of them were able to hold on to their wealth and stay in the upper middle class and rich categories, while 3,180 of them were considered middle, lower middle, or poor. That's, that's real life. 63% 
of those white boys held on to their wealth and 63% of the black boys lost it. They all started in the same place. So we're not talking about differences in education or, um, you know, where they were living. They all started in the same place. The New York Times article um, that talks about this study states that black men consistently earn less than white men, regardless of whether they were raised poor or rich. The inequality can't be explained by individual or household traits. Much of what matters lies outside of the home, in their surrounding neighborhoods, in the economy, and in a society that views black boys differently from white boys. The study also looks at the other end of the spectrum, right? For poor children, the pattern is reversed. More poor black boys will remain poor as adults, while white boys raised in poor families will do much better. This research tells us that there is, you know, something different, something unique about the challenges that black males face. Will Jawando, who worked for Obama's foundation, My Brother's Keeper, which is a mentoring program for black boys, said that even without this data, the people who worked on that project believed that individual and structural racism targeted black men in ways that require policies devised specifically for them. So I share all of this to say that we can't keep our kids from the harsh realities that are waiting for them right outside our doors. You can't stop them from experiencing these things. You can't shield them from racism. So you have to prepare them. You have to prepare them for this battle because it's happening no matter what. Whether they feel it when they're five or they first experience it when they're 18, it's going to happen. So we have to prepare them. We have to talk to each other and learn from one another. You know, and I said it earlier, there's there's really no foolproof plan for this. And because of that, I want this to be a, con a conversation that continues. I want to hear more from you. You know, what do you think we should be teaching our kids? For me, to kind of summarize my four-part answer, I think the first thing is teaching them self-love and self-worth right? Teaching them to value themselves, whether you use affirmations or not, however you see fit, but teach them to really love and value themselves. Second is to teach them that because of their skin color, they are going to have to work harder. They're going to have to work twice as hard. They're going to have to be, you know, 10 times more prepared than their counterparts just to get their foot in the door. My third thing is to educate them, to educate them on their history and their rights. They really need to know and understand their rights. That's really important, right? We can't have them growing up in this space where they think, oh, that'll never happen to me. I'm a good kid. No, they need to hear the stories of other good kids who it did happen to. And they need to know the things that they can say to defend themselves, to protect themselves, you know, knowing that they have the right to say, I can't talk to you until my parents are here. And lastly, my fourth thing is to encourage them to be vocal, to encourage them to fight for what's right, to encourage them to have the strength and So my challenge to you this week is to take one of those actions, whether you have a talk with your kids about self-love or self-worth, whether you talk to them about the extra effort you know that they can put in, 
or you educate them on their history, the history of black people in this country, or you just get out there and protest with them, leading by example. Whether it's your child or a child whose village you are a part of, you know, strike up a conversation with them, especially if they are little. There's so much happening around them right now that they may not understand. So take the time to explain it. It will probably be uncomfortable. It may even be hard for you to find the words, but don't give up, really push through it and answer all their questions. And sometimes saying, I don't have an answer is the best thing we can say, but at least hear them out, talk through it. Cause one day you won't be there. And racism will rear its ugly head right in front of them. And they will be forced to think fast, to act fast. So give them the tools to protect themselves and to stand up for themselves so that they can make it home to us, so that they can make it home unharmed and with their heads held high. If you have a friend or a colleague... Before sure. you go, you have a, a few, <laughs> but I'll just read um, uh, one of the comments for you. It says, and it's your uncle. We would have never thought we'd be listening. He said, I am so thrilled to hear my niece talking this way, and I'm very proud. You did, parents, you did a good job. Please tell a bravo. And I told him that I'll do it on the radio before the end. He said she is doing a fantastic job. Somebody else said, um, somebody else said, uh, Lori Abayowila. <laughs> somebody else said, I am about to have a child. And I didn't know that I had to do all that. Okay, and this is just a couple of them. I cannot read them all, guys. A lot of people are saying, bravo, thank you, thanks for sharing, and so forth and so on. Just wanted to read a few to you. That's awesome. And I, of course, again, will go through all of the comments. If you have any thoughts, please message me, text me. Um, you know, I want to hear what everybody has to say. I think this is an important conversation that we have to continue right? So that we can be there for our kids. Um, so thank you for that. And, and I look forward to, to reading and responding to, to all the messages that I get. Um, but yeah, if you, if you know someone that you think would I, have liked I think I have, not, I have one more message. Oh, sure. <laughs> just came up. Um, let me see if I can get to it. I don't know if it is, um, um, wow. It's not coming up. I can read it on your phone, though. Um, it says, um, I have made it my mission to reach out to the mom of black boys. Black girls are just as dangerous, but our young... Or just as dangerous, but our for our young men, it is worse. Yeah. And I think somebody else just said something else. Kind of, hold on. Um, send it kind of late, so it's hard for me. Someone said, um, Great show. Uh, wish said had been listening with me. I'll definitely have him do so. Awesome show. Thank you. And I think that's about it so far. That's awesome. And I, I do want to tell everyone that this week, you know, we replayed. Um, we replayed the show on the black man on Monday. And so there, there, there won't be a replay of this one for right now. Eventually, of course we will, we will replay it, but I will make a link available on my social media channels so that, you know, you can share them and you can pass them on to anyone who you think would benefit from listening or would just like to listen. So I'll be sure to share that today so everyone can can pass it around. Um yeah, I'm I'm really ha I'm really happy to hear these comments and it you know, I think like I said earlier, I I want to hear 
what people have to say. I'm not a mom yet, right? So I'm speaking from a place of just seeing you know, my my like my niece, the the children of my cousins, the children of my friends whom I love, and and I know this is just something that is top of mind for all of us, right? As we think about them and their futures. Someone so, asked yes. you if you will have a repeat, and you just answered. I'm saying. Yes, I will definitely share the link. I will share the link so you can listen to it, um, you know, whenever it's convenient for you. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about crabs in a barrel. Um, if you don't, if you're not familiar with that reference, you have a few days to look it up. Um, but it really is focusing on the dangers of jealousy and envy. So please mark your calendars for next Monday at 6 p.m. here on Radio Africa 1804. And in the meantime, if you have any comments, thoughts, or questions about what I talked about today, please, please feel free to message me. On Facebook, you can find me at Lori Lee Camo. And on Instagram, you can find me at Lori Lee underscore. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening.